0: Yes, indeed. Signs, signs, they are everywhere. Do this. Don't do that. But wait, what does the sign actually mean? Communication is critical, and that's why we're speaking directly and symbolically with a lead designer, a semiotics enthusiast, and an expert communicator on this edition of Ruby Apps Insights. Our guest today is Laura Hahn, head of design at Priceline.com. Today we're going to discuss semiotics, the importance of communication, and how interpretation and every slip, so to speak, is a big deal. Okay, I did that. Welcome. I do like that. I do like
1: that. And one correction that maybe we should have gone over is that we're now just Priceline. We've dropped the dot com Ooh. officially. This is it's a recent change, so Oh excellent. No, <laughs> no problem there. Good.
0: Glad my research um, uncovered that. I'll have to I know. get that's, rid of that. that's our fault though, yeah. I think. Our our brand
1: guidelines are out of date. So <laughs> well
0: from Priceline, welcome. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's
0: so exciting. So tell us a little bit about your role there. I know that you're the Head of Design. So, what does a day in the life look like?
1: Yeah. So, uh, it's a relatively small team, um, but we cover brand design, uh, product design, content strategy, uh, and then also um, what's the last one that we've got covered? Um,
0: The biggest one yet. The biggest one yet.
1: (laughs) No, I think that's like that's a general overview of the functions that we've got, Um, but it's. Right now we're 10, we're hoping to be 12 in the near future, Uh, but day in the life is that we're working really closely with our product managers, engineering organization as well, so building out all of our different Priceline products, both on the web, our native apps, all that stuff, and then also engaging with our promotional materials and everything Priceline that you see uh, comes from our shop, so...
0: So to set the stage for some of our conversation as we get deeper into it, there's a lot of collaboration and intra-organizational interaction that goes on on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So most of the designers are partnered with a product manager as well as a dev lead and then engineers that are actually pushing out product. Um, So there's a lot of cross-functional collaboration going on there. And then, of course, we've got myriad departments at the, the company at large, so heavy interaction with our marketing teams um, and then also our customer care teams. So there's a lot of different functions that my team is interacting with uh, all over the, the organization. So.
0: And so without stereotyping, but with stereotyping, <laughs> uh, it sounds like there may be different kinds of personalities, people with different skill sets that approach problem solving and their roles differently.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Definitely different problem-solving approaches. Yes, we also have two offices. One is here in New York, one is in Norwalk, um, also a Winnipeg office. So there are cultural differences just between those different offices and then also the departments have their own cultures as well um so we're doing a lot of um yeah like cross-cultural stuff and being ambassadors of design essentially to lots of other other arms of the company um that sounds a little highfalutin but yeah we kind of are representing our function uh, well
0: sometimes people just don't Notice that, I mean, it's, it was funny you said Norwalk and you're here in New York, and we're like, well, that's Connecticut, but even Connecticut culture, so to speak, <laughs> is probably different than what an urbanite in New York City would, uh, would yeah, be. Definitely. Yeah,
1: definitely. Definitely.
0: <laughs> Sorry to all you folks from <laughs> Connecticut, even those of you that are commuting into New York City. So uh, when we first connected, we had a conversation about linguistics and meaning. And I know that's a passion for you. So let's unpack how <laughs> precisely that came to be yeah, for you. Yeah,
1: for sure. So I've always been a language enthusiast. I studied languages all through high school and college, um, both, you know, the German or like the romantic languages that you tend to study. So a lot of Spanish and French also studied um, Japanese and Tamil. Um, so Yeah, I love languages, (laughs) A. And I started thinking a lot about the interplay between language and culture and the interplay between language and meaning. Um, I think doing an art history undergrad paired with more of a um, linguistics undergrad, that started to meld a lot as I was doing like readings of different pieces of artwork. So how do you take um, a painting and then read it lots of different ways? So semiotic theory was one way to to think about that stuff. So what are the different signs and symbols that you're seeing? How do you interpret those things? What do they mean? And also the, the subjectivity of that reading. So I think a lot of postmodern art history theory, you're thinking a lot about, okay, the author may have some intent, but um, the real magic happens with the viewer and how they're they're reading whatever that thing is so um yeah <laughs> yeah and
0: you dropped the s word before i even uh, <laughs> expected it so of course that's that's semiotics <laughs> and you did thank you for for defining it of course you know the study of signs and symbols um but what was interesting to me about your background is that you paired visual study with verbal and sometimes people are very single track you are a writer or you are a visual thinker but pairing those two together there must be some really fascinating interplay and space at which you exist and even the way your mind probably works with how you problem solving is one thing because that is a very business oriented uh, approach to things but just in general the way that you must see and experience the world is probably enhanced based on that background.
1: Um, I'd like to think I so. I basically just gave you a superpower. <laughs> yeah, so. no, that sounds really yeah. great. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think it definitely does. Um, if you think about the the history of language and specifically written language, I mean, it starts out as something that's very pictographic, right? Um, and then it morphs into something that's more symbolic. So you, we all understand that now this thing doesn't represent a cow anymore. It represents the ah sound. Um, so that... I think is really interesting from in the design world, right? Because so much of what we're doing is um, making the invisible visible or rendering some sort of conceptual intent in a way that people can more readily understand. That's a lot of what written language serves too. So how do you make something that is otherwise invisible or something that's like between two people, something that that has more? tangibility to it I guess and more of like a lasting artifact of that thing so that's super interesting to me and I think about as I'm as I'm engaging with people as a designer I tend to pair spoken (laughs) like conversations with um, whiteboards or my notebook or whatever is nearby to clarify what it is that I'm trying to communicate with that accompanying visual artifact Um, it tends to people just tend to understand what's going on a little bit more if you're representing it pictographically as well. So, um, yeah, I was listening to someone who I'll probably have to get back to you with his name. But he, um, a genius. You have to listen to the follow-up yes, episode. Yes, for sure. Um, a genius from MIT, but he was talking about how um, if you're... Speaking conversationally or just talking or even writing, it's a very low compression medium. There's You're essentially having to, using long words, um, try to transfer whatever is in your head to another person's head, and then they have to reconstruct whatever that picture is that you've got in your head. So a lot gets lost in that translation, but if you can render it as a visual, um, it's a more highly compressed medium to pass that same picture. So something like, you know, mathematic notation allows you to very quickly <laughs> relay something that otherwise would take you maybe a couple sentences to explain. So I think that there's, there's something about that form of communication that is higher compression and lower loss. You lose less in translation.
0: Yeah, there's a a word uh, that continues to pop up in my mind, which is uniformity. And the idea of uniformity for various audiences to interpret something in the same way. And it seems like uniformity is easier to achieve with this compressed state rather than all of the I don't know other other nodes and distractions that you have to grapple with in order to achieve that core meaning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally right. So, yeah, I think a lot of semiotics is about the fact that whatever the sign is can be interpreted in multiple ways. Like what that meaning is could be different, and um, and it's very subject subjective what your interpretation of that is. So yeah, how do you like? Create some form of communication that has fewer, like, disparate uh, interpretations.
0: Today, the matter of truth is critical for all people, professionals, and marketers, especially. Whether or not there can be multiple truths is debatable, but within the context of brand and content management, there's typically only one. That's where Ruby Apps comes in. Ruby Apps is a cutting-edge collaboration platform that provides marketers and business developers with a single source of truth from which to manage, publish, and share mission-critical content in a more consistent and efficient fashion. To demo Ruby Apps today, visit rubyapps.com. One of our team members here actually shared an article from Vox Media with me on uh, how to design for fear. And I don't know if you've actually seen it. but (laughs) It it was about uh, the selection of an icon and having it be memorable but meaningless so that there would be attention given to it and it wouldn't have any prior associations. In particular, it was about the biohazard signal and Mm -hmm. whether that would be a lasting signal going forward in time. But I was just curious to know if you had any perspectives, not necessarily on biohazard symbols, but on on the creation of symbols and how there can be prior associations and meanings that some might have with a particular geometry and then assigning it some new meaning and how you move it away from that or how you create something net new without people saying, oh, that's the blah, blah, blah from the blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about um, the cognitive space that things already occupy. So that for sure happens with certain shapes and certain symbols. Um, you just can't really shake some of that stuff. So I think about it a lot in terms of namespacing in development where you want to ensure that um, something has a clean namespace. It's not sharing a namespace with something else. Um, so death. Definitely. I think that also happens with words, too. Um, I know that I already chatted with you about a recent situation at my company where um, we had this whole workshop day where um, a consultant came in and was talking about how you take a big product idea and break that down into smaller experiments where you can validate that your product idea has teeth. Um, And all day long we were talking about experiments and how you design the right experiment to validate uh, your product idea. And then at the end of the day, I realized that everyone had heard experiment and could only have the Priceline translation of that, which is an A-B test in production. So everyone's experiment was an A-B test in production rather than any of the many other (laughs) ways that they could have um, validated their ideas. So that was a really good um, reminder (laughs) of the fact that yeah, words do have very specific meanings in specific contexts, in specific cultures, and we hadn't done a good enough job of um, unpacking what that meant outside of the Priceline world and that it could be something more agnostic of this very specific definition that we had. Language can be a dangerous thing because I think people's minds tend to rewire towards that specific meaning. so.
0: So that's a great illustration, and what I was hoping we could do would be to go one step further <laughs> and just talk about literally what the risks can be associated with you know, these preconceived or cultural constructions that organizations may have around words or around um, terms or even processes and how they yield kind of preconceived results because of those cultures?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that they, like, words and cultures can, um, and that sort of, that wiring that goes along with it, I think that it can reduce elasticity or plasticity in your culture, in your organization, in your processes. Um, If you have a set of words or a language that's too narrow where you're, you're trying to overly categorize things into, like, strict buckets, um, and I think that, that that tends to create more solution-oriented or oriented cultures rather than solution and, like, output-oriented cultures where Everyone in that situation was trying to drive towards the output that they knew they were measured on. Like, we have certain quotas around how many A-B tests we put into production. So that's something that that they're measured by and is a a construct for what they're expected to deliver. Um, So I think that being careful about those sorts of things, yeah, design is another one that's tricky uh, for me because... um, a lot of people's mental models about design, they're kind of conflating three different things. So there's the actual design artifact, which might be most people would think it's a wireframe or I don't know, something pretty, I guess, is a lot of what people are thinking about. But then there's also design as a process of creation um, and then there's the designer who's a person or design as a department or a role and all of those three things kind of get like put together Um, but there's something very prescriptive when you think about design as a deliverable where yeah if people are expecting that our their engagement with us should result in a specific deliverable then they're not gonna be able to understand all of the other different ways that they could engage with designers. So I think that's something that uh, gets pretty tricky. Like I think moving from calling if you, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where we called um, developers or engineers coders, but if you're calling coders, coders, there's a very specific uh, expectation for what it is that they're delivering that might not uh, allow for them to take up more space in an, in an organization.
0: Right. Right. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You put, you, you're putting people in, in in boxes essentially, and they're only allowed to exist within those boxes, and that can be very limiting for an organization. I was wondering. This is a, a little bit off topic, or maybe it's not. I was wondering if jargon is something that falls into this category as well. There's certain, you know, c- certain fields have their own languages that are germane to those fields, and it has some prescriptive meaning. <laughs> You know, if you're going to build a deck, a deck means something. It it may specifically mean a ten-page PowerPoint presentation. If you're a management consultant, well, if you're a management consultant, probably is a hundred-page deck. But you know, just the same, uh, I, I was curious to know if that was something that falls under this category as well.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And in our context, there's a lot of jargon in the travel industry, which I, I guess makes sense, um, but it's funny for us because it starts to creep into the way that we talk to our customers um, who are very much not in the travel industry. So um, yeah, things like, uh, for example, on our rental cars path, uh, internally, we refer to our checkout page as a contract page because Historically, there's a contract between you as a customer Mm -hmm. and the company that you're renting a car from, um, but that's not what that page is from a customer viewpoint. And if you were to say, yeah, they wouldn't be able to say that they found a bug on the contract page. They wouldn't even really think of it as a contract anymore. So there are certain things that are in our lexicon that are very much not in a customer (laughs) lexicon, and Mm -hmm. and it's detrimental for us to to speak in that way because it makes us less... Approachable as a company, it—I um, I think it—it it sows mistrust, right? Mm. Um, so,
0: or do you have to be bilingual, so to speak? I mean, of course, you have to be able to speak to the customer in his or her native language, whatever yeah. that may be. Um, but I, I would tend to think as well that having a shorthand by which you can communicate with your peers has to speed up the process and allow you to serve your customers better and faster.
1: For sure. But I think that with expediency, there's always a loss in nuance and Mm -hmm. um, a loss in in some perspective, right? So I think as we're hoping to become an even more customer-centric culture, I think there are certain things about our language that should change to match that. If that's a goal, if that's a pursuit, um, to to think more like our customers and to be more in tune with our customers, I think by speaking like our customers, we might like re, re rewire our organization a little bit. So mm-hmm. that's definitely something that I I want to push um, is adopting new sets of language that are less about our conversations with our suppliers and more about our direct conversations with our end customers.
0: So mm-hmm. and if let's just say that your business is acquisitive and you wind up having new customers theoretically you'd have to learn new ways to speak to new customers
1: for sure definitely um yeah I mean language evolves people evolve (laughs) companies evolve so yeah yeah, absolutely we should be we should be growing our vocabulary um, yeah over time
0: makes perfect sense who in the world, I guess, in the world of business, though, probably specifically, does this well or better than others, or at least does it well in one way enough that well, we can talk about it and people can we can name drop? Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> I think I've been thinking a lot about um, how Amazon does product development. One of the things that's part of their product development process is, Essentially, writing a press release ahead of time. So, you pitch your new product by writing the press release that ultimately you would want to be presenting to a customer, right? Here's our new cool thing that we made for you, and here's why it's valuable to you. Um, And I think that that's a really good exercise for. Putting yourself into the customer's mind, what would they want to hear about this cool new thing that we've built, even though you haven't built it yet? Um, and I think that obviously the the business value should be pretty evident in whatever that is. Um, but how do you sell something that like is meaningful to you to your business to a customer? How do you connect that business value with that customer value? Because that's that's product market fit, right? Um, where it's delivering value on both sides. So I think that that's a really good exercise and it's a, it's a writing exercise. It's a storytelling exercise. Um, how do you tell the story of the thing that, that you want to build? So I think that that's really, I think that's a good way to go about doing product development, but
0: I don't know. Yeah. I, it works. It's interesting because we had this conversation before, uh, not this whole conversation, but I asked you this question and I recall you mentioned Amazon. And so in preparation, I went and wanted to get a better understanding of how Amazon communicates. And I think I knew this already, but one of the things that I learned about how they communicate internally is that meetings are run via the memo. And so they will prepare a six-page memo and that's how the executives and the executives go into the meetings, they read the memos, and then they have the actual meeting itself, which is pretty fascinating come down to it. And you have to have strong written skills I would imagine otherwise you're not going to get that job there I don't think I know of any other organization that has that demand on memo writing but I also don't know any other organization that is as (laughs) successful really as Amazon has been yeah. So take that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, yeah, it's an emphasis on communication and clarity of communication. Something that um, can stand alone. It's it goes back to that um, that idea of artifacts too, right? There's the production of an artifact, which is a memo um, that needs to be able to stand alone and can be um, socialized or passed around as necessary. So there's something really powerful in having to produce something like that,
0: but would that be your recommendation to anyone at any organization because clearly there's going to be a cultural fabric anywhere and you have to do what works but would you start by suggesting the creation of some artifact and then socializing that artifact across the organization (laughs) in some way and then that's how you would embed a, a new idea or a new definition of experiment or something to that effect
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, I mean, I might be biased as a designer, but I think having it be a visual artifact rather than a written artifact would be even more impactful. Um, so if there's a way to better visually represent whatever concept it is that you're trying to push, um, not necessarily a high-fidelity mock of a user interface, but some sort of diagram of, of whatever, whatever information it is that you're trying to present, um, I think that's very valuable
0: you know I was I was going to end the episode here and just say (laughs) okay but I I did have something else occur to me that I thought I wanted to ask earlier and you just mentioned again so talking about the power of of visual that visual is not going to stand on its own it's going to be accompanied by something verbal and my next thought would be okay the more senses you have incorporated the easier it is for the full idea to be absorbed
1: yeah Absolutely. Yes. Um,
0: so, actually you actually did a song as well, <laughs> then you even greater chance that
1: absolutely. Right? Okay. Yeah, I think I think for sure, um, or something that's tactile. I think a lot of the this sort of design thinking workshops that I run, um, we tend to, to try to have, I mean, post-it notes is a really simple way to do that, but it's something that's actually tactile that you can move around, um, that you can be engaged with and, and interactive with. Um, and yeah, if you think about all the different ways that people learn, some people learn kinetically, some people learn visually, um, yeah, the more, you're absolutely right, the more different senses that you can engage, the more likely it is to be adapted and understood, so yeah.
0: Awesome. Amazing, I don't know if I've read the, the signs and symbols right. I've looked at the time and I want to make sure I'm respectful of yours, but is there anything left out? Should we cover anything? Um, Else?
1: Other than that, I'm hiring. (laughs) All right.
0: I mean, if this hasn't been an advertisement for someone you'd want to work for, then I don't know what is. So, wonderful. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us today on the Ruby Apps Insights podcast. It has been my pleasure. No, thank
1: you. My pleasure, yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Ruby Apps Insights, which is recorded in Studio 55, and hosted by me, Alexander Kopp. You can subscribe to Ruby Apps Insights on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Pandora. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a comment. Equally, if you didn't, or if you'd like to hear a guest or a topic on a future episode, send an email to insights at rubyapps.com. Until next time, have an awesome every day.